Hello and welcome to another Real Estate Investment Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Doak, and today we're talking with Ken Williams, a CPA and a principal with Clifton Larson Allen uh, here in the uh, Bellevue, Washington area. And we have a few exciting topics. Uh, I say exciting because as many of you know, my background, I was in public accounting and a tax professional for many years. And uh, I was kind of a, a geek when it came to doing uh, research and strategies, uh, especially around development projects. And today we're talking about opportunity zones, what's happening within opportunity zones. Uh, we're also going to talk about 1031s, what might be coming out of Congress or kind of what's going on within the conversations around the professionals talking about 1031s. And then, of course, individual independent contractor tax strategies that uh, we may want to consider a look at as an independent contractor, as a real estate agent or broker. So without further ado, uh, let's get started. Uh, Ken, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, thanks, Derek. Appreciate the chance to be on with you today. And uh, uh, thanks to your listeners for for uh, lending some attention to what's normally a pretty boring topic for a lot of people, but uh, you know, we tax accounts, we get pretty excited about it. So uh, again, uh, I, I'm thrilled to be here and, and uh, uh, from the Seattle area, I've been uh, with Clifton Larson Allen, CLA, for the last eight years, and I work a lot in their real estate group, and I do a lot of partnership taxation and so forth. Uh, but yeah, from the Seattle area, uh, and, uh, love it here, even in this rainy time of year. Um, but, uh, that's, that's what gets me excited is, uh, helping people figure out all these puzzles that, uh, that, that, uh, we get, get thrown at us on a regular basis from, from Congress and Treasury. Thanks again, Ken, uh, for being on the show. Uh, I think the first topic that I want to talk about has to do with the, uh, opportunity zones. Um, I know opportunity zones have been around uh, for a while now, and more and more people are or have been looking at them and investing in them. So I'd love to get your perspective on what is going on within the opportunity zones as it relates to taxation and what might happen with opportunity zones when we get into a new um, White House administration. Yeah, so I, I missed a little bit of your question there, but I think you're asking about opportunity zones and what's been happening there. And um, and a lot of the, uh, has been happening with regard to opportunity zones uh, that's mostly mostly favorable. Um, and the first of the year, uh, the first thing that came out was that initially the rulings were that if you had what we call 1231 losses, which is uh, gains or gains or losses, excuse me, from business property, that you had to net those out. Uh, loss, gains and losses against each other to determine whether or not you could had a gain that you could invest in an opportunity zone. Well, early in the year, Treasury came out with some updated regulations that said, no, you don't have to net those out. So you could have any kind of a 1231 gain as long as you don't have depreciation recapture. The, the, the capital gain portion, the potential capital gain portion of that is eligible for 1231. That's a great opportunity for our clients because now we can have our cake and eat it too. We can have, if we have offsetting gains and losses, we can defer the gains into an opportunity zone and still claim the losses, whereas before it looked like you couldn't get that. So that was a big development. But, but, but probably the biggest one is as a result of the CARES Act, um, 
there was some pushback with the economic consequences of, of COVID where people who had intended to invest in opportunity zones, those funds had to delay. Projects got pushed off and things weren't able to happen. And, and as most people know, with an opportunity zone, there's a 180 day window in which you have to reinvest the gain in the opportunity zone fund in order to, to get that, that preferred treatment and deferral. Well, because of that 180 day window, a lot of people were pushing up against that. They thought they were going to be fine, and then all of a sudden the project got delayed or, or lots of things were going on. So Congress basically said, you know what, uh, we're going to give you until the end of um, – we're going to give you till the end of 2020, all right? So if you had a 180-day um, a window that was going to expire any time after April 1st of 2020 – then we're going to give you till the end of 2020 to start the to start the clock for that that 180 days. So that really opened up uh, a lot of opportunities for folks that otherwise would have missed the window to get that. And and so uh, and and they also if you apply that if you had a a partnership for example that you had ownership in. Uh, the rules say that you can use either the 180 days from when the transaction occurred in the partnership, when the gain was generated in the partnership, or you can use the last day of the partnership's tax year. So what that means is that if you had a gain from a partnership, you have the ability to defer that 180 days um, uh, well into next year. Um, so that's opened up a lot of windows there. There's also been some some easing up of some of the restrictions on when the money has to be deployed within the Opportunity Zone Fund into qualifying assets and so forth. That gets kind of technical for your audience. It may not be of interest. Um, but uh, anyway, a lot more flexibility with these Opportunity Zones. Yeah. No, and I, I wonder with more and more of these lockdowns happening now, if they're going to readdress it before year-end or have a look back and say, you know, if it starts in January, if it, are they going to extend any more time, you know, based on yeah. kind of where things are at? So uh, that's, that's it's, it's always evolving, it seems like, uh, around the yeah. uh, deployment of the Opportunity Zone funds. Yeah, it um, is. And and there's a lot of – the nice thing about it is there's a lot of political will on both sides of the aisle. Uh, opportunity Zones are, are liked uh, by both sides, and so there seems to be a lot of steam to – to make it work because they see it as um, as something that's creating opportunities and jobs and and uh, investing in communities and infrastructure and so forth. So, uh, well, we'll see. You know, the tide could turn if there's negative press about uh, some deals that uh, you know uh, that that can turn very quickly. Again, Congress sometimes is fickle on these things, but right now um, it, it's it's looked at favorably. Well, sticking with the theme of Congress, uh, let's kind of turn our attention to 1031 because there's a lot of speculation out there. There's a lot of fear. You know, there's a lot of companies that they focus on, you know, 1031s as their business. And I know from a tax strategy and haven't been a part of these for years, uh, it's a way to defer taxes and to uh, do tax strategy planning, especially for those that are elderly and going to look to pass on the assets with a step up in basis. So, um, First, kind of give me your perspective on what you're hearing amongst your peers around 
1031s and then kind of the thought process around it. And, uh, and are there any things that um, those with properties now that are considering 1031 might want to look out for? Yeah. So uh, 1031s, again, they've been around for a long time and they serve a valid purpose, which I think Congress recognizes the intent being, look, we want to tax uh, revenue, but we don't want to unfairly treat people who actually have not gotten access to capital, and we don't want to restrict uh, transactions from occurring just because of the tax consequences. So if I'm uh, if I've got capital deployed in one investment and I decide that I'd rather deploy it in another investment, Congress has lowered the 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 bar. Um, to allow that to happen by uh, allowing the deferral of the gain that would be realized on that transfer. And, and so we see that in a lot of different tax law, and 1031 is just one of those, and it's been around for a long time. The most significant thing in the 1031 arena is uh, with the Tax Reform Act, uh, the Tax Jobs Creation Act that, uh, in 2017, they – that the law was changed so that 1031s now only apply to real property. Before it was just any like kind property, um, you that could qualify as long as it wasn't, you know, inventory or publicly traded stock. But but any any business assets or investment assets that were like kind could be exchanged. That got limited to just real property, and um, that has. Uh, some significant impact, but it was kind of offset with the new bonus depreciation rules. Because what would happen is, let's say you had a real property, but it included personal property uh, that was included with real property. These new rules said, well, you don't get that deferral. You don't get to avoid tax on the sale of the personal property, even if you didn't touch the cash. That's still taxable gain. Well, but if you bought similar other personal property and are able to claim bonus depreciation on that replacement property, then um, you're kind of in the same position. Yeah, you had to take it into income, but you get a deduction for the new property that was purchased. So a lot of people said, you know, this is this is okay. We're not so bad. Where where the problem occurs is if a that replacement property is not eligible for bonus depreciation for one of many reasons that could be. Um, and that could taint the deal. Um, but, and then just also you know, transactions that, that don't involve any real estate. And then there was a concern this year as to, well, what if, does the real property taint the 1030? The, does a personal property taint the real property transaction? And the IRS came out with some rules this year that, that said, they said, no, no, no. You know, as long as the the personal property is is uh, you know it's it's or regular that that would be included in this type of transaction and it doesn't comprise more than 15% of the overall uh, fair market value of the property being exchanged, that won't taint the 1031. So that was good news. Um, but I think that there's a little bit of a, a fly in the ointment here that may not be on people's minds because bonus depreciation is only around on a temporary basis. It starts to phase out and is fully phased out before 2025. And so as people are looking at these 1031 exchanges and saying, well, it doesn't really matter the personal property component of it, 
whether that's furniture and fixtures or 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 whatever um they're, they're kind of lulled into, ah, yes, yeah, not a problem. Well, that could start to be a problem as bonus depreciation gets phased out over the next few years. Now, to your question about, you know, long term, uh, you know, I, my crystal ball is no better than anyone else's. Um, I don't think that there's a, a big incentive to wholesale remove 1031. The, the the it serves a valid purpose in the market, um, but usually where Congress makes their revenue balance in in these different tax proposals is to clip on the edges, right? To to say, well, we're going to allow 1031s, but for example, we're only going to allow it for real property, or maybe we should expand the number of years that the prop- replacement property has to be held without clawing it back. Or, um, you know, there are lots of ways that they can kind of trim the edges. And um, as Congress uh, is faced with maybe needing to raise revenue, uh, this this could be one of those areas. We just don't know. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of the, the political will um, and the perceived virtue or potential abuses of these mechanisms at any given time that determines whether or not it, it's, uh, it's grist for the mill as, as they're looking at different provisions to adopt. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, 1031 is one of those, um, I guess, chosen vehicles by a lot of real estate, professional real estate investors in the sense of how do I keep growing my wealth and growing my cash flow, uh, without hitting the taxes just yet. And uh, mm-hmm. so it, it, the, the industry around 1031, there's so many different other types of service offerings that would be impacted uh, greatly by it. And, just, and then just the sheer volume of deal stock. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, oh, yeah. Because you look at so many deals are now being looked at in a 1031 light that uh, it would just really kind of grind to a halt. And um, you'd have people just holding on to their real estate that they currently have for even longer. Um, oh, yeah. It, it uh, drives a huge it drives a huge uh, part of that whole segment. Yeah. And and so that's why I think it's unlikely that Congress is just going to say, now we're, we're repealing this because it would uh, do exactly uh, the opposite of what the code section was intended to do be in the beginning, which is to allow for the free flow of capital. Uh, all of a sudden, that comes to a grinding halt. So I think that's a real poison pill that Congress wouldn't want to want out. Uh, yeah, agreed. And then I look at just the whole, you know, depreciation recapture. When I'm doing, you know, financial analysis on a project or property and, and looking at it, what it would be for tax consequences to sell something, you know, the mm-hmm. capital recapture, the depreciation recapture is a big one. And if you have a long-term family asset that's been there for many, many multiple years, decades even, you've depreciated it down to nothing. I mean, the, the tax consequences is is, uh, is large. I mean, very large. Um, oh, yeah. My fear is that they do away with 1031 and do away with step-up in basis. You know, so the idea of being able to sell, you know, if somebody passes in the family, they can step it up in basis um, to get strict depreciation all over. But if that went away, right. that's another one of my fears is, okay, now no 1031 and no step-up basis, 
And you know they're going to increase the state tax at some point in time because right now it's at an all-time low of what you can put into an estate and not have it taxed. Um, I mean, all-time high. Uh, you're right. going to get more and more estate tax. So then it's like, uh-oh, now that really gets scary. Yeah, 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 exactly. If they were to do it with a step up or, lo- or lower that estate threshold to where all of a sudden what you thought – you weren't going to have a tax liability on death because you're going to get the step up in basis, plus it would be excluded from your taxable estate. But if that is dropped from the $11 million down to, say, I think 3.5 uh, was the Biden proposal, um, you know, that could put a lot of people all of a sudden aware, uh, where is this cash going to come from? It, I, one strategy I was thinking of, can you put a property, what if, what if it's a partnership? So if you have if someone mm-hmm. buys your interest in a partnership and do like an installment sale, is there a tax advantage there of deferment um, on an installment sale of real estate? Yeah. So as your listeners may know, you, a partnership interest is is not eligible for 1031 treatment. It's not considered real property and. And um, so you can't exchange one partnership interest for another and call that a 1031 exchange. And so usually you're you're left with a a scenario. It's either a swap and drop or a drop and swap scenario where either the partnership does the 1031 exchange, or you get the property out of the partnership and uh, into a tenant in common ownership, and then do the, the 1031 exchange. So, so that's the common approach. Now, you're asking about what about just selling the partnership interest? And, um, yeah, there is the ability to, um, to sell an asset on the installment sale. And then as you receive payments, you, you recognize that income over the, the period of payments. What you have to watch out for in the sale of a partnership interest is whether within the partnership, there are any things what we call hot assets. So certain assets, certain depreciable assets or unrealized ordinary income assets in the partnership, then those, those, those gains may not be eligible for the installment sale treatment. But to the extent that there's capital gain there involved and you're receiving payments over time, that's a way to at least defer the, the tax liability. You're still going to pay the tax as you receive the payments, but it's not all at once. And, of course, then the question is, well, I know what the tax capital gains rates are today. I'm not sure what they're going to be a year from now. Maybe I want to recognize more of that gain now rather than down the road. And, and we have a lot of clients that are talking about that, saying, can I elect out of the installment method so that I get all the gain into this year because I think that capital gains rates may go up. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of push for that, um, just from the uncertainty uh, side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All good stuff. Well, the la- I guess the, the last topic I'd like to cover is you know, a lot of the listeners are uh, real estate agents and commercial real estate brokers, and I get a lot of questions around tax strategies for them as an independent contractor because they're treated as independent contractors for the firms that they work with. What would you, if you had uh, an agent or broker, uh, call you and they were saying, Ken, how should I set myself up? What should I be looking for? Are there any, uh, tips you'd give me, uh, to help save my taxes or a tax liability at year end? Um, what kind of response sure. would you give that person? 
Yeah, so there are some pretty um, common strategies that we use with uh, some of our uh, real estate professionals and other uh, other professionals in, in that scenario where they they uh, are on a commission basis or self-employed. Um, and uh, you know, typical approaches are around maybe looking at should we should be should I be an S corporation? And we can talk a little bit about that and the pros and cons of that. Um, Am I maximizing the ability to use retirement accounts? Um, one of the biggest things of late and with the 2017 tax law changes is the new Section 199A deduction. This is this 20% deduction on your taxable income uh, from qualifying uh, trades or businesses. And uh, whether or not the individual qualifies for that deduction, and uh, that, because that's you know that's a twenty percent uh, trim off your your tax liability potentially. So how do we maximize that? And one of the provisions in the uh, tax law is that if your income is over a certain amount, then you have to have W two wages from that business. Well, if you're self-employed, you you don't you don't have any other employees working for you. You don't have W-2 income. So, if we have a taxpayer with uh, with four hundred thousand of a, of adjusted gross income, all of a sudden we're looking at how do we get that to qualify? Um, if they were an S corporation and paying themselves wages uh, from that S corporation, uh, then that would uh, allow them to have the, the taxable wages and and get that deduction. Um, and so those are some some things that we can do to optimize things. Now the IRS has been more and more aggressive about S corporations in terms of making sure that if you form an S corporation and pay yourself a salary, that that salary has to be reasonable based on the services provided. It's difficult to argue if your business. If nothing nothing exists in your business other than you yourself, uh, and you're the one performing all the services of that business, it's difficult to argue that um, most of that income is not income earned by you, and that that's what you should be paid. And the IRS has gotten more and more aggressive about going over folks that have you know two hundred thousand dollars of income in their S corporation and pay themselves you know twenty thousand dollars in in wages. That's uh, not not a return that I would want to be signing. So, um, <laughs> but you know, the, but there are some opportunities with the right facts, and that's where we have to look and say, what's really going on here? Are there elements of value besides your labor in the business that we can get some of the payroll tax serving, savings and still have enough wages to qualify to maximize this 199A deduction? So if you have other employees or capital deployed, that's a little easier to argue that not every dollar earned by the business is from your sweat equity, but also from invested capital and labors of labor of others. Yeah, and I always tell them, I said, make sure you write down all your expenses because what I have found is people who don't write down their expenses end up missing quite a few, and there's a fair amount of deductions that you can get as an independent contractor that. Um, that, you, that they're just not tracking, and uh, oh yeah, so I think they're leaving a lot of expenses on the on the table as well. Um, as oh, as absolutely, as yeah, yeah. As an employee, it's a little more difficult to to do that, but as an independent contractor, self-employed, absolutely, you, you, tracking your mileage, track tracking all of your 
your out-of-pocket expenses in in open houses and in and in uh, meetings with 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 other folks with travel and your vehicle mileage and expenses, uh, home home office expenses are a big one, um, and uh, all your licenses and entertainment is is kind of a change this year uh, or the last two years. Uh, but business meals you still get 50% of those um, as opposed to entertainment, um, and and just you know creating looking at what you're doing and saying, is this an ordinary necessary part of, of what I'm doing? I should be able to, to claim a deduction for this. Obviously there are rules that, that have to be followed and, and we, we talk through those and say, okay, what do we have to substantiate here to be able to claim this deduction? But yeah, you're right. A lot of money gets left on the table just because people don't sit down and think about it and say, well, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. I spent this and I spent that. And, and that that's related to to what I'm doing here. That should be deductible. That's where we have the conversations and say, yeah, yeah, that's deductible, or or maybe we need to to um, substantiate this a little differently to to make sure that you're getting the deduction. Yeah, no, that's great, great information. Well, Ken, I know our time is up here, so but I I appreciate you taking the time and walking through the various scenarios that we discussed uh, around tax and tax strategies. Um, if somebody had some questions or somebody wanted to uh, discuss further uh, around their taxes and, and uh, assistance, uh, how could somebody uh, get a hold of you? You bet. We'd love to talk to them and answer questions for them. Feel free to reach me. Um, my uh, my email away, address is ken.williams at claconnect.com. Uh, Feel free to, to, to give me a call, um, my direct line, 425-250-6011, or you can always go to the CLA website. That's claconnect.com, and there's a lot of information that we put up there for for the public at large just about what's going on and how to deal with COVID and PPP loans and so forth. It's a great resource for for that we that we put a lot of time and energy just to help people answer these types of questions as well. Thanks again, Ken, uh, for participating. Uh, great information and definitely helps uh, looking in, going into 2021 and thinking about uh, the Opportunity Zones, the 1031, and of course, uh, our individual tax strategies uh, as independent contractors. So again, thanks a lot. I'd like to thank the audience. Uh, if you have any questions or you'd like to reach out to me and uh, ask anything about uh, real estate investments or syndications or property management or asset management, feel free to give me a call on my cell phone, uh, 425-802-3653. Again, 425-802-3653. Or send me an email at derek at docmail.com. Again, it's derek at docmail.com. Thanks, everybody. And everybody have a great day.